Welcome to the Mindwaves podcast. I'm your host, Rosie, and in each episode I'll be sharing positive news, stories and information about mental health in Greater Glasgow and Clyde. Mindwaves recently celebrated our 10th anniversary, and in honour of the occasion our founder, Trevor Lakey, wrote a post on the Mindwaves blog. We hope that his reflections inspire others to share their memories of the last decade, whether it's about the impact Mindwaves has had on their lives or how their relationship with technology and their mental health has changed. And speaking of technology, for today's main feature we are talking about social media and how it affects our mental health. I was lucky enough to speak to Hannah, Luke and Amy from Glasgow Disabilities Alliance, Jenny from the Mental Health Foundation and Dr Heather Cleland-Woods from the University of Glasgow. We are like a group from GD, which is Glasgow Disability Alliance. Um, they're an organisation in Glasgow that have over 5,000 members that support disabled people all over the area. Um, GD was actually created by disabled people for disabled people. So a lot of the stuff that they think about is a lot better than sort of the mainstream um, society and groups that are run because we never have to disclose like what our impairments are. There's always support in place, travel's covered lunch has covered, things like that. And then obviously for the pandemic, they've put a lot of things in place, um, like wellbeing checks, um, help to access technology, um, online classes. Wonderful, wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit about yourselves as individuals? My name's Hannah Reynolds. I'm here from GDA, Glasgow Disability Alliance, uh, and I'm the Digital Inclusion Manager. So I've been supporting people throughout the pandemic to access technology and learn how to use it confidently. Hi, I'm Luke. I'm one of the members at uh, GDA. I'm involved in quite a lot of their projects. So um, the Purple Poncho Players, which is a um, sort of drama side to GDA. Um, also their Drivers for Change, which is more looking at kind of um, making changes and things in wider society with it. Hi, I'm Amy. I'm also a member of the Drivers for Change and Young Drivers for Change at GDA. Um, I also am a youth arts consultant with Birds of Paradise Theatre Company. So um, we look into things for other theatre organisations to help make their websites more um, accessible. So um, often we will go through their website and write down um, things to make it more accessible. So because I have a visual impairment, um, when I go through a website I'm looking at it based on a screen reader user's point of view so I'm looking at do the links all read okay um, and how how can I navigate it as a screen reader user and I've also done quite a lot of testing um, for other organisations to do with how accessible their things are um, for screen reader users. Can I ask you what was your early experiences of social media like? For myself I didn't really get into using sort of like technology and social media and things till I was um, almost 16. Um, so at that point, it was quite an important lifeline to me. Um, I wasn't disabled at the time, but as an LGBTQ person, mm-hmm. I found it really good as a way to kind of learn more about um, different identities and what maybe fitted for me. So that really helped in that area of my life. And it also allowed me somewhere where I could be who I was away from my family who weren't aware of my identity at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as things developed and my health declined, it then became somewhere I could connect with others that had the same genetic condition that I had. So for me, um, I didn't 
start to get into social media until I got my iPad that has a built-in screen reader called VoiceOver, which all Apple products have. So that enabled me to essentially access most elements of Facebook. But I didn't really think about not being able to access images at that point. I think I was still trying to just get to grips with how to use it. And it was kind of a novelty thing, being able to comment on people's um, updates and like be able to private message them and, and things like that because I hadn't been able to do that before. I've then realised that there are things that I do miss out on. Sometimes I will ask people to describe their pictures um, if I know the people quite well, kind of closely, and they know me. If I don't, then I'm kind of less likely to ask them. But one really cool thing, and I really like this about Twitter, is they have a feature called alt text, which is alternative text. And what you can do is when you post a, a picture, there should be a little, I think it's a little box that comes up and it will say alt, mm. um, something like that. And that gives you additional space to write a description of what the picture is. So that means that people who use a screen reader like me, when our software encounters the picture, they'll actually, it'll actually read out what what you've wrote in the description. Um, I don't think the description is visible for people who don't use screen readers mm-hmm. or not all of the time anyway. It might be sometimes, I'm not I'm not sure, but alt text is a really, really good feature. Um, it means that I'm able to still appreciate what people are posting because often on Twitter, it does seem to be quite a lot of pictures. Um, and when the alt text isn't used, my screen reader will just say image. And so I'll know that uh. there's something there, but won't know what it is. Everybody experiences social media in a unique and different way. Uh, I was wondering, do you think that there are experiences that has been specific for you? I've found that I've had like both really positive and very negative experiences. Mm. So like the positive first would be, it's allowed me to, I don't know, meet other people with the same genetic condition as myself. Um, Mm. It's allowed me to like interact with that it's allowed me to interact with like other like wheelchair users and get I used to actually be an admin of a wheelchair group on Facebook Mm -hmm. um where it's only people who use a wheelchair or scooter full or part-time and so that is really good in like getting advice and things around that but I used to be a really avid user of Instagram um, and actually a few years ago I had to take a step back from it because I found it was having a really negative effect on my mental health particularly someone who was newly diagnosed um I kind of fell down this like black hole of I would overthink every little symptom I would like constantly be on edge it was making me really anxious but because then I was so hyper focused on everything that was going on there was a third party platform at the time that liked to take people's social media and then accused them of faking their disability oh um and I got a lot of hassle from that. And it went on for like many, many years. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really scary because they would like try and find out like where you lived and stuff. And I'm always very careful on social media just for like my own personal safety and stuff. I actually took a step back and I was and looked at myself and was like, no, this isn't healthy for me, for my mental health. Mm. And stopped interacting with like chronic illness communities. Apart from like... Um, the wheelchair group I used to admin and now only use like my Instagram and stuff for my artwork so I might blog as a disabled artist but that's it I don't really talk about my health 
uh, and the issues I face around that. Using social media for uh, promoting or just sharing your artwork, is that a very different experience? Very different. Even as like a disabled artist, it's like night and day the experiences that I had with it. It's like very accepting, very open to like helping each other out. Um, it's not a competition of like who's the sickest, all that. It's more like, oh, wow, your artwork's great. Like, this is really good. Maybe you could, like, change this bit or do it this way, and it might help you, like, find it easier to do or improve the quality of the work and stuff. So it's, like, really supportive in that sense. Social media for me is positive. Um, obviously, it's a way I can keep in touch with friends, and through the pandemic, it's been really important. Um especially since a lot of my friends are part of GDA and so we haven't been able to meet up and do face-to-face things so I have been using Messenger quite a bit to just keep in touch with people. Um, I suppose in terms of negative things I've had times where people have met up or they've done something and I've found out that they've met up because obviously this was pre-pandemic but I found out they've met up because they've like wrote texts saying you know I had such a good time um, and they haven't asked me um, to go or anything, so sometimes I do find that I do miss out on some things and just find out about it through social media, but I guess everyone can kind of relate to that as well. I think it's really important to have that balance of using it for, like, socialising, in a sense, because obviously we've all been, like, through lockdowns and things, and particularly someone who was shielded, and that was the only way to be in touch with friends and like get to know what they were up to and stuff but also knowing the limits on what's like good for you as well and obviously keeping safe and everything. Hannah I know that you had spoken a little about helping people who had maybe never had access to social media before. Yeah this is something we've done quite a bit of research on so when the pandemic first hit we surveyed all 5,000 of our members and an area we focused on was digital exclusion so we spoke to people about the technology they had in the home, uh, whether they had broadband, mobile data, their experiences online, if they had equipment they didn't know how to use, uh, that kind of stuff. And that was really revealing and really um, shocking. So disabled people are four times as likely to face digital exclusion as non-disabled people, so lacking equipment, connectivity and and confidence to access the internet. Um, So that's 60% of our membership not able to get online, not having the confidence to use a technology. And if you imagine that kind of over Glasgow or over Scotland, that's a lot of people excluded. And that's a lot of people who during the pandemic haven't been able to access essential information, haven't been able to do a lot of things that many people take for granted, like keep in touch with friends and family easily, do online shopping, do online banking, uh, and stay in touch with people over tools like social media, things that maybe many of us take for granted. Um, And obviously digital exclusion is both a cause and an effect of poverty, isolation, barriers to information and services. You know, we see the way that those two really interact really strongly. So GDA's response to that has been to uh, distribute equipment to people who are digitally isolated. So to that extent, we have distributed hundreds of iPads, laptops, Chromebooks, um, and other pieces of accessible equipment as required. So Bluetooth speakers, um, external keyboards. Alongside that, we will support people with coaching. So that's been obviously over the phone because we've not been able to do anything face-to-face to support people to get confident enough to get online. We don't have any kind of uh, set structure or expectations of things we want people to learn. Uh, we don't have a kind of checkbox of 
you know, things we want people to know after 45 minutes on the phone or anything. The coaching is really led by the individual and the experiences they're facing. So for some people, a priority is social media. For other people, a priority might be something like learning how to do online shopping or learning how to check the football fixtures or check the weather or maybe use up all those random carrots they've been getting from the food bank or something like that. So we really take it on a case-by-case -case basis and let the individual kind of support us. Um, sorry, so let the individual guide us around their coaching journey. But definitely what we understand is that digital exclusion hurts disabled people disproportionately. There was an asylum seeker we were supporting who didn't have any access to the internet, didn't have a TV or anything, didn't really have a concept that the pandemic was occurring because how would he? He already has difficulty getting out of the house, receiving information, English isn't his first language, and then suddenly having to break it to somebody that we're in the middle of this crisis um, and this person doesn't even have a way of communicating with people back home to figure out if they're okay and what's happening to them. So actually getting people online is so much more than just soliciting likes or some of the kind of frivolous things that maybe people might think social media is about. Actually, for a lot of people, it's a really important lifeline. Do you have any uh, examples of ways that people could share online in a more accessible way? Personally, I found when there's a lot of text like that's one thing I struggle with. So like keeping text short and simple, I have dyslexia. Um, so like reading long things I can find difficult. Um, I use, which was what GD helped me with, a fantastic piece of software called iGaze. So I have all the hardware already, which is like a Windows Pro tablet, which attaches to a mount, which attaches to the wheelchair, which has a bar underneath it called an iris bound that is tracking the movement of my pupils as I'm moving them to select things for me. When I'm using... The Facebook app as part of the software, uh, anytime I use the scroll down function on it, it reads, it has the option to read out the post to me. Um, so that if the post is really long, I'm sitting here forever, like listening to it, read it out to me. When they're kind of short and to the point, it's a lot easier to understand it, keep my attention and let me know what's going on because I use audio a lot, just in general. My screen reader reads everything out to me. So in terms of if you have a Twitter handle with a really long name with lots and lots of emojis, it's going to read out every, indi in every individual emoji to me. So um, if people could maybe just not use as many emojis in their Twitter handles. Also, if people could use the alt text feature on Twitter to describe their images, like an image of a poster or something. So if I don't have access to that, then I might not know when a class is starting, for example, or when something is. Something I suppose that has been really key for us as part of the Connects project is the significance of unlimited data. Really, I can't stress that enough that it is so important that disabled people have access to unlimited data. Disabled people already are having to do so much juggling and mental arithmetic around, you know, if I, if I get a taxi for this hospital appointment, what does that mean I can't do later in the month or you know, managing medication, things like that. The last thing we want disabled people to have to do is have to decide whether they are going to have a video call with their family in another country or attend a GDA learning class, for example. So the significance of unlimited data just is one less thing to worry about. From our perspective, as long as people are doing things that are safe and legal, not hurting anybody else, 
go hard, spend all that time on the internet you want. It gives people a flexibility and a method of inclusion that I think disabled people have really been longing for for quite a long time. My name's Dr. Heather Cleland Woods. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Glasgow. And along with my colleague, Dr. Holly Scott, I run the Hashtag Sleepy Teens project. Our aim of that project is to understand a little bit about the relationships between social media use and sleep and how that impacts things like our well-being and our ability to connect socially with other people. We started this project from the default position of well, social media is quite bad for you. And therefore I came from asking questions about from a sleep perspective and um, because there was a lot in the media at that particular time that really was um, focusing on devices and phones and time spent on phones. And obviously more time in the day that you are on social media or that you're gaming or you're doing any other activity, yeah. um, that has the potential for pushing your sleep back. But actually, the more we dug into that question, um, it got us some really interesting answers because it wasn't necessarily just about being on the device and people talking about that, that object. Um, it really highlighted that young people were using social media in particular ways that, yes, that could pot potentially impact your sleep, but there really was lots of differences in the way people were using it and how much they were using it so that really kind of informed where we took the project do you think that there is evidence to show an increase in anxiety with social media use or, or is it a more nuanced subject it's a lot more complex than just one size fits all so there's a few things to unpick there so if we start with the sleep part of it okay we know that sleep and if you're not getting enough sleep or enough good quality sleep that we know that that is related to things like anxiety and depression right because we know sleep well I hope we all know how important sleep is and how much we value good quality sleep mm -hmm. for all aspects of our life, right? When we're getting good sleep, we do all feel a lot better. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is when we look and unpick the relationship between social media use, nighttime social media use and sleep quality, we actually, there are small relationships there. So that tells us actually there's a lot more going on. Mm -hmm. So we have done a study that has shown, and that was published back in 2016, so a few years ago now, where we did look at the relationship of social media use, sleep, and things like anxiety and depression. And as I say, there are small relationships there. Because they are small, that suggests that there's so much else going on that it's not just as simple as social media, bad sleep, higher anxiety. Mm -hmm. That really gave us the opportunity to say, okay, let's go and talk to, it was adolescents, it was young people that we were, we were talking to, and we said, okay, so do you use social media? Do you use social media at nighttime? Does that impact your sleep? And if you are using it, why? What are you up, what are you up to? And what came out of that was really interesting, mm -hmm. because what they said was, actually, we are using it to connect with our friends. We're talking to our friends. Mm -hmm. Now, I know it's a long time ago, but I can remember being a teenager. And one of the most important things to me during that developmental phase was connecting with my friends, connecting with my peers. Mm -hmm. And we know that adolescents, their brain is developing in a way that really holds up their peers and their friends as potentially the most important people in their life. We all want to fit in. We all want to find our social groups. Mm 
So actually, as the research has progressed, we understand now that actually social media is a real way for us to connect with other people. Our social lives can expand over that 24-hour period. Now, of course, if we are continuing and, and that social connection, we are chatting with our friends online, um, way into the early hours of the morning, that's probably not the best thing because we are pushing back our sleep and we still need to get up for school in the morning or get up for work in the morning or you know fulfill our commitments the next day so yeah if we use it too much just like if we do anything too, too much, much it's probably not the best for us but if we can get that balance right and actually understand this is a really helpful way for me to connect with other people we have students within our program here at Glasgow that are from all over the world. And when you speak to students about how they use technology, they'll say, well, I am on it a little bit later, but that's the only time that I connect with my family who are back home and my friends back home. But that's amazing that they can do that. But again, it's about getting that balance right about how we use this really helpful tool. Um, that's a really important question. It's not that do we use it or not. So I'm always against this, just take it away or take the phone away. I don't think that's particularly helpful. But how we use that and have discussions around that, I think can be really helpful. Focusing on the amount of time on a device doesn't really inform us on what's happening. So would we be as anxious if, if a young person was saying, well, actually, I'm finding this incredibly helpful because it is allowing me to connect with people while we're in lockdown? Or actually, it's really helping me become part of our community as I move to university. I'm in my first year. I don't really know anyone. And it's allowing me to connect with other people and make friends. It's allowing me to connect with other people in my course and, and support each other with, with you know, study groups and things like that. So it's really, it is very, a lot more complex. And it's like any social interaction. It's not one size fits all. It is a very nuanced relationship. As human beings, that's part of what we need. We need to be around other people in whatever way that suits us. And I think that kind of feeds into one of the negatives. Like any social connection and any social interaction, not every social interaction we have will be the best one in the world and make you walk away feeling great. I'm sure we can all think about social interactions that we've had in the physical world that have come away and thought, oh, that didn't make me feel very good. Didn't particularly enjoy that. But that's part of life, right? Yeah. So when we're online, we still have that ability to go, you know, looking at the baby, looking at these pictures of this particular person on Instagram isn't making me feel really great about myself. Mm -hmm. But remembering that you have the power to say, so I'm not going to look anymore. If you're feeling uncomfortable or somebody's putting you under pressure or for any of those reasons, you're just like, this is just not a good place for me to be. You don't need to be. One of the participants said, well, what I do is I, I, I'm kind of popping in and out as I need to do. There was something, it was a, a club or, or a hobby that this particular person had. She was saying that she used it in a way that I can pop in, I can have a discussion, I can get the information I want, I can deliver the information that I want, have that, and then I can remove myself again. Once you're in, you don't need to stay in. I think it's about having that sense of, I don't need to be everywhere all of the time. I can use these online spaces, just like I go to offline spaces yeah. if and when I want for, for the reason that I want to go there. From your perspective, do you think that there are active decisions we can make about our social media use that would be helpful for our everyday life? If you feel that just having a little very passive browse through a social media platform just to finish your day 
is, is fine for you. It's not arousing. It's not making you waken up. It's still allowing you to feel sleepy tired. Then you know what? That's fine. But if you if you feel that you're going on and it's actually there's lots of conversations and you're feeling that you have to connect with these people, then perhaps it's not the best place for you to be right before sleep. I think the other thing we need to think about, and it's really interesting, the work that we do with schools. And when you open the discussion up, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, that that is really interesting because sometimes I feel that I'm obliged to continue with conversations at nighttime when I'm in bed. Actually, I'm quite tired. I'd be quite happy to go to bed. So when you open up those conversations with peer groups, and maybe that's something that's quite key just to have that agreement say, if I look at your message and I don't respond, it's not that I'm doing anything else but going, do you know what, it's time I'm just going to disengage from that just now. And I'll, I'll come back to you in the morning. Are young people maybe using social media or being online a little bit more at nighttime just because they're not tired? We don't want people lying in bed when they're not tired. We want them going to bed to go to sleep when they do feel sleepy tired. So it's about understanding the nature of sleep at different developmental points. Maybe it's having a conversation of how can how can we facilitate that feeling of feeling sleepy tired? How can we support those good practices so you are getting healthy sleep when you need it? Hello, thank you for having me on the podcast. My name's Jenny. I'm a communications and marketing officer for the Mental Health Foundation in Scotland. So I look after the social media channels in Scotland, so mainly Twitter and Instagram. I also work on the Mental Health Foundation podcast. And my background is in digital media. I've grown up with it and I do have a master's in design and digital media as well. So I'm really interested in it, um, especially from a cultural perspective. What was your early experience with social media like? So growing up from the age of about nine, I was lucky to have a family computer in the home. I used all of the sites such as Bebo, MSN, Habbo Hotel, Club Penguin, Pixel, the amount of Pixel websites I made. Um, and it was a really great creative outlet. Um, and I feel like I learned a lot. I got a lot of skills from that. It's probably the reason I work in communications today is because of all of the things I enjoyed doing on those platforms. But I also can look back as an adult and realise that because it was so new at the time, my parents wouldn't really have had the understanding or the tools to safeguard properly. And there was probably things I was looking at, like many other children at that time growing up, that weren't age appropriate. So... I know we're in a much better position in that today in terms of safeguarding and social media rules and things for children. But I, I still often say to folk, you know, no matter what safeguarding you've got on your kids' phones or devices, I would always just recommend that, yeah, have an extra, extra close eye on it, even with them. Because I think back to myself as a child, I was very savvy. I grew up with it. And when you grow up with technology, you do have a different understanding of it as opposed to learning it as an adult so I always kind of say yeah make sure make sure you're all over it. How can people manage their boundaries online with their friends and family? This is a really important question and it's one I feel like is not talked about enough. Boundaries themselves in any form are still quite new in our vocabulary today and like kind of general chat um, and I think a lot of people still are struggling with how to put in boundaries in any form but social media boundaries, I think in particular, are so difficult because social media is pervasive in our lives and 
everyone, almost everyone has a social media account, particularly if you're a young person or if you live across the world from your family, for instance. And I think it's difficult because people use social media platforms for different things. Some of it is to keep in touch. Some of it could be business. Some of it could be to get the news. The best way to manage your social media boundaries is to really establish what am I using my social media for? What is the purpose of going on? Am I mindlessly scrolling? Is it entertainment? Do I enjoy watching TikTok videos that make me laugh? And then determine the kind of content that helps you, um, that adds to your life, and the kind of content that drains you. And if it happens to be that you have friends or family who are sharing content online that does drain you, there are different actions you can take. You can mute them. If you want to unfollow them, I think that should be okay. But it really depends on your situation. It's easy for me to say that. I don't know what your friends and family are like. It's good to have a conversation and say, you know, I'm using it for this. Like, I really appreciate, you know, I love lovely pictures of your child, um, but it's just that I'm using for my social media for work at the moment and I'm using it to keep on top of trends. So I'm really trying to keep focused. You could say something like that. You will know yourself if that's appropriate in the situation. Make a wee, a wee manifesto, a wee intention for why you are using social media. And I think just in general for yourself, even if you're not implementing any boundaries with the folk around you, it's just good to know, well, why am I using this? Can I use it more mindfully? And that way it means that we're making the best of it and we're not kind of our devices. <laughs> we're controlling our devices and our online activity rather than it being the other way around. It's a completely huge world online and it might be that you don't have space in your brain to add in family photos or different conversations that are happening in there and I think that's a really great way to phrase it because it doesn't make it personal it's just that you're focusing on the things you really want to and you know you can have different ways of handling it you say you know maybe you don't have a certain friend or family member on the social media platform but you chat to them on whatsapp every day or you text them once a day, or you FaceTime once a week, or you say, you know what, I'd rather maximise our time in person. I'd like to see you more often in person, and social media is not the same as my real life. So I really have a strong boundary between those areas. It would be great if, as a society, we all treated each other's social media decisions with respect and, you know, didn't necessarily probe them or ask them or pressure people to use their social media in a certain way of course hate crimes you know bullying online that's completely different that is open to you know you should get involved in that or report it to the police where necessary but assuming someone has made a really clear decision about how they use their social media without thinking that it is a reflection of anyone else it's purely for the kind of content they want to take in and respecting that what kind of decisions should we make about what we do and don't share online? Everyone's lives in some way, even if you don't have a social media account, there's a chance that your family member does or that you're going to be in a photo that a friend might upload online. And I think it's really important to, again, have a, a wee intention to yourself. What, what kind of things do I want to share online? Is it just to share some fun content with my friends? Is it part of my work? Is it sharing interesting knowledge with others? It's absolutely fine if some of it's a bit vain. I mean, sometimes, yeah, I'll post online and be like, oh, I want to look really good. And that's absolutely fine. Like, I know that's why I'm posting it and I'm owning it. We should be kind to ourselves. We should not shame ourselves for that. It's just about checking in with why are we sharing it? Are we comfortable with it being online forever? The permanence of that? Are we comfortable with it being seen by potentially anyone? Even if you do have a private account, it's really important to know that 
nothing ever is completely private on the internet. There's a chance that, you know, even if you have a select few followers, they could screenshot it and send it on. Does it have the potential to hurt anyone? Does it have the, you know, if I'm putting up a photo of someone who maybe doesn't have social media, doesn't really like social media, have I got their consent? Have I got people, even if they are on social media, have you got their consent? I think it's a really good conversation to have if you're posting of other people. But it's a huge conversation that I think needs to be had a lot more. I think as well, particularly for young people, children, it's really important to educate them and make sure they're aware of what happens when they post online because it's still such a new thing in our society. We know that a lot of people are growing up online, making mistakes, saying things that are harmful but not, you know, not quite old enough to really know better. So I think there needs to be conversation, education, particularly in our schools. I'm sure sure schools are really doing a lot more on it these days. But again, just making sure that everyone knows why, what and where they're posting it and where it could end up potentially. Is it important to analyse what we see online? I have this belief that we should have media education in all schools, um, from primary school to high school. I think it should be as compulsory as English or maths because we consume so much media, we consume so much advertising. We live a lot of our lives online now or reading certain things that are programmed to try and get us to buy certain things. They're made that way. So I think it's really important that we have critical thinking skills and not everyone has that. Um, you know, a lot of adults today still don't have the critical thinking skills they need to be able to take apart a piece of media or a social media post to really understand what it's trying to say, why it's making me feel a certain way, where's that person coming from, what is their intention, what is this company trying to say, is it trying to sell something? And just having that awareness can help so, so much. In your opinion, what would proper support for social media managers look like? Because social media is still relatively new, I think a lot of workplaces are still catching up as to how to best support their social media or digital teams. Um, I think, again, the first thing should be boundaries. There should be a policy for social media managers. They should have different devices for work. They shouldn't be using their own phones for multiple reasons. Data protection, that sort of thing. Making sure that they have a phone for work and a phone for home, their lifestyle. Especially for a mental health charity, we have really rigid safeguarding practices in place because we sometimes get people reaching out who are in deep distress. So we have a team who help us manage them and make sure we can deal with them safely and help people as best we can or signpost them towards people who can help them. Ultimately, you need to have a kind of leadership team who really understand social media because what can happen is it can fall onto the, the officers or the people who are doing the social media to kind of take this all on themselves and put the structures and processes in when actually it should be from the top down in an organisation. And it'll be harder for all different sizes of companies to implement this. But I think just making sure that the person in charge knows how important social media is for the reputation of the company, for engagement with, with users or um, customers, whatever it is, if there's external people engaging with your company. And that's just a small snippet. There are so many other ways that you can support social media teams in organisations, but that's a great place to start and just making sure you have the infrastructure in place to really provide a great online service and protect your staff at the same time. Let us know where people can go to hear more from you. So um, I'm part of a project um, 
called Divergent Influencers. We're a group of like seven young people. We recently just created an app. We have an Instagram page, which is Divergent Influencers on there. If you go into Birds of Paradise's website, you should find a page about the Youth Arts Consultant and what we do. I'm the Digital Inclusion Manager at GDA, Glasgow Disability Alliance. We would love to hear from you if you're disabled or have a long-term condition and live in Glasgow. You can contact us by phoning 0141 or you could email me at hannah at gdaonline.co.uk. You can contact us in BSL using Contact Scotland. Uh, you could tweet us or contact us on social media, Facebook, Instagram. I can certainly share the web link for our Sleepy Teens website, but I think the first and probably easiest step um, is for people to jump onto Twitter at Cleland Woods. Follow me there. Feel free to send me a little direct message and I can send some more information. We are always looking for research partners. Um, if you're interested in learning more about our research, please do um, get on Twitter or they can email me directly, heather.woods at glasgow.ac.uk. You can find more information about the Mental Health Foundation at their website. I'll leave a link in the description. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to appear in the podcast, or if you need assistance with your podcast, then get in touch by email. Podcasts at mindwavesnews.com